Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Long passage of scripture today. Actually, one of my favorites. And I know I've taught this passage at least once in the past. And um, so hopefully, you don't remember my sermons even worse than I remember them because I'm not exactly sure if I taught this before. So thank you for being here, whether you're joining us here on our campus or online. Um, What I love about this passage is that um, it captures the the intent of God's heart, and it does it in these three compelling stories that even though they're they're ancient stories, uh, they're they're timeless. How many of you uh, shop at Costco? Okay. And you know when you go to Costco and you, you buy, you, you intend to buy something, but you can't just buy one. You have to buy this big bunch of it, all shrink-wrapped together. That's how I buy my Cholula. I love Cholula. I put it on everything. Lasagna, I put it in my soups. I put Cholula on my Cholula. And when you first buy that package, they're like the bigger bottles, and it's like, oh, man, I'll never use all this Cholula. And yet, I have managed to do that, you know. So it's one of my favorite places to get it. And these three stories that Jesus tells here, it's like a Costco pack of three of lost things. It's all shrink-wrapped, like in series in Luke 15. And you might think that it's an oversupply of this teaching by Jesus, but you're going to see that the theology of these stories should be sprinkled on everything we learn about God, just like Cholula. So if you're just joining us, uh, we're in a study of Luke's gospel, and we started at Christmas time. We're going to complete an Easter from the birth of Christ to the resurrection, so that's our plan. And so overall, if you just take a big view of the ministry of Jesus, it lasted about three years of his adult life. And at this time, he's still, as we've been talking about, he starts in the northern part of Palestine, Galilee, and he's working his way south toward Jerusalem. He's going to little towns and villages. He's sending out advanced teams. He's gathering people together. People are starting to follow him. He's teaching them. He's healing people. And the momentum keeps building. And um, so large crowds are starting to gather When he teaches, synagogues are packed, and sometimes they even have to teach outside because Jesus is becoming so popular. And now, in this section where we are in Luke, this is one of those instances where Jesus has gathered people together and he's teaching. And in this crowd, it's like it's a mixed crowd. Um, There there are disciples there. There uh, are people who are against Jesus. There are people that are just kind of quasi-interested. There are looky-loos. There's Pharisees, religious leaders. And to this group is who Jesus is going to tell these three stories in succession. 
they're, uh, they're called parables. And we talked about parables here before, but a parable is a story with a point. Only it's even better than making a point. How many of you parents teach your kids with parables? You tell them stories, right? You say, hey, this is, they have a question. It's like, well, it's just like this. And you tell them a story. Why do we do that? We do it because stories stick with you. They're, for some reason, they're more memorable. Um, and stories make you think. A point can tell you what to think, but a story makes you think about what you think. Does that make sense? It does? Oh, okay. <laughs> so sometimes the, the parables that Jesus tells, they're true stories. And I, I would want to add here, only the, only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Uh, but you have to be, like, of my age to get what that's all about. But the truth is, sometimes Jesus even puts the names in there, right? So these are, sometimes it's a real person that he's telling the story about. Other times it's completely fictional. And it's like this commonplace thing that happens in their lives in the first century. And when they hear the story, people respond like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. I can connect to that story. I know, about, I know all about that, and it happens all the time. And other times, Jesus will tell a story, but there'll be this twist in it. Like, it's making sense, it's making sense, and then he tells the last part or somewhere in the story, and there's this thing that doesn't make any sense at all. Like the story of the Good Samaritan. Like the three people that go by, the man that's been overtaken by thieves and wounded, the idea that the Samaritan stops and helps is like, that's, just, that's like a twist. That's a spin. And then other times, the parable, the story is totally commonplace, but the way Jesus connects it to their life is a twist. It's kind of eye-opening to them. And these stories are the latter to the people that are listening. It's, it's a common thing to them, losing things of value. But there's an aha to it that at the end of the story, he's like, he, they're like, I, I'm totally tracking with the story, but like, I didn't see that part coming. So let me just go through and summarize each story before we jump in here. First of all, the lost sheep. It's personalized. Did you know that? He said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and one is lost. Don't you leave the 99? And go and find the one that's lost. And don't you rejoice when you find it. Bring it back home. How many of you ever lost your dog? Okay. Like, we had a little Yorkie named Spanky. And uh, don't judge. And uh, he would wander around the neighborhood sometimes. And, and I can remember him being lost one time. And we were really panicked. Uh, you know, we thought probably coyotes are going to get him. And he's a little tiny Yorkshire Terrier, five pounds. And so we're driving through the neighborhood, spanky, spanky. You know, it's like, and I'm just thinking, he's a goner, you know, and then we're going to have to deal with this. And we're, we're driving through the neighborhood, and we're like, spanky in here. And we're like, make a long story short, a neighbor had found him like way around in the neighborhood and had him in the garage. And so we knock on the door, and we're reunited with Spanky. So do you know what it feels like to be reunited with that thing that you lost, you know, when you've lost your dog? That's the feeling. 
And in case they don't get it, Jesus even makes a clear application of it. In verse 7, he says, I tell you in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Then Jesus follows that story with another where he says, or suppose a woman has 10 coins and she loses one. Now, imagine everyone here has either lost money or a credit card or a wallet at any time, right? So, so a couple years ago, I mean, this might be the Sunday for Costco, so I should get like a, like a bonus from Costco or something on this, but I was at Costco, and um, I was having my Costco card and my credit card in my wallet, and I kind of get them all ready so I'm not that person clogging up the entrance. And um, it must have fallen out of my wallet, my credit card. And so, like, I got in there, and it's like, then I realized, oh, my gosh, I lost my credit card. So, like, what do you do? Like, I'm scrambling. I'm out of Costco. You know, I'm not saying hi or goodbye to the people at the door. I'm trying to find, walk every step that I did in the parking lot. My heart is pounding. And to make a long story short, I don't find it. And so I cancel it right there in my truck. And then uh, maybe five minutes after I do that, one of our members, Tanya Morgan, calls me. And she goes, hey, did you lose your credit card? I'm like, whoa. How did you know? And the story, one of her friends found it. And I can't even remember. If she was here, I'd have her stand up and tell the story. Such an, but they, they found my credit card, but I'd already canceled it. So when you've lost money, you get it, Right? Not much has changed from the first century. But just in case they don't get it, Jesus reminds them here. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of an angel, of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And in the last story, the prodigal son, it's longer, right? And it's layered. So for now, let's just, let's just look at the first part of it. A father has two sons, the younger of which, or whom, callously says to his father, I want what's coming to me. And in the first century, that meant that he would get about a third of his inheritance. But it, it isn't just like he's getting the money. He's basically saying, I just, you know, I would just sooner you be dead and, and I get the money that's coming to me. He cares nothing for his family or his father. And, you know, that, that's shocking to us, right? Well, it was even more shocking in the first century. There are people too. And... There's no tradition to guide this father and how to deal with this. Um, it's completely unreasonable. It's unbelievable that a son would do this to his father in the first century. And, you know, the common wisdom of the day would be, well, you should just kick him out, not give him anything, send him packing. Um, but the father is heartbroken about this. And what's unbelievable this is how the story starts to change, is he actually gives them the money. That's shocking to, the, to his hearers in the first century. And of course, as the story goes, there's no way this kid can handle that kind of wealth, not in the condition that he's in. And so he blows it all, and he's broke, and he's starving, and he's doing a job of taking care of livestock, pigs, who as a Jewish male, this is like the dirtiest job of dirty jobs. 
But in the middle of that, he has this aha moment. He has this breakthrough. And interestingly, with that, he has a moment of humility. And he says, you know, I could go back home. Now think about that. How many, how many people have you known in your life that you can just see the path of their lives leading to destruction? And, they can, and you can see it. They may even see it. But they can't turn around from it. So this is really remarkable that this young man is able to break his addiction, uh, to rethink his situation, and to overcome this power of rebellion or whatever's drawing him to this life away from his father. His pride, it's like, usually is so deep in us, he's able to break away from that. And so he goes back, fully realizing what this means for him. In the first century, he's, he basically he told his family, you're dead to me. And in that time, that son would be dead to the family. So when he comes back, he can't be a son. He's, he could come back and be a servant, but not part of the family anymore. And the reason why he's doing this is he's desperate. He's not, ha you know, there's no indication that he's repented or he's, he's got this new moral outlook on life. He just, what's driving him home are the consequences of his life, which isn't that often what God uses to change us. And while he's still a long way off, Luke says, the father sees him. Which to me kind of says that the father is always looking, you know, going on with his day, but always looking, hoping that his son would come back. And before his son says a word, the father is running, which is humiliating to him in the first century. And he gives him a full bear hug, and he even kisses him. You know, under normal circumstances, the father would wait for that son to humble himself and to, to, to repent and to apologize. And the father doesn't wait for that. How many of you have ever thought you lost a child? How many of you are hoping you could lose a child? <laughs> so I, I might have told this story before. Again, I might be having a senior moment here, but when I was a little kid, I lived in Miami, and we had this canal at the end of our street. There's water everywhere. My parents would let me go fishing. And so, like, I'm talking, like, I probably wasn't even in first grade yet. And I just go down to the canal and fish. And one day, uh, some older friends from the neighborhood came by in a rowboat. And he's like, hey, you want to go with us? And I'm like, yeah. So I get in the boat, and we're gone. I don't even know how many hours, but all day. And so um, I come home with my little tackle box and my Zebco, and I, like, I notice that the deputy's uh, car is in the driveway. And I'm like, ooh, what's going on? Did my brother do something again? <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I, I come in, and like, you know, it's pandemonium. My mom is screaming. She's hugging me. She's crying. She's like, you know, where have you been? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, I got in the boat. And about that time, she started grabbing me and shaking me. And she's like <laughs> slapping me and everything. Don't ever. She was using bad words on me. And so the, then the police officer just, just left, which I think that that's a problem too when your mother's beating you. <laughs> so... 
the father throws this big party for his son when he gets home because he thought he was gone forever, which evidently my mom did too. And everybody's happy in home except for the older brother and one really fat steer, right? So three simple stories, three lost things. So let's make a few observations about these stories before we jump into like some bridges that we can bring these ideas forward. So what's common in these stories? First of all, it's obvious something is lost. And there's a variety of things lost, I want you to notice. I mean, the sheep is obviously there's like a, in any living thing, there is like something different than an inanimate object that you feel for, even if it's like this is livestock to them, but it's also this person's livelihood. It's something that he's invested in and he's put time into and, you know, built a business with um, these animals. And then there's also a lost coin. And uh, it's not, this isn't to this woman just like losing, you know, a quarter or something. There's 10 coins. This is probably her nest egg, her retirement. And so uh, this is her financial worth. And she just lost 10% of that, which might have happened to some of you guys in your mutual funds recently. But, uh, and then there's uh, the son who walks away. And, you know, it's a rare parent that doesn't experience that at some level, you know, a child that's going to rebel against their family. Or, I mean, m- most kids go through this. And we know how stressful that can be. And then when, so when we read these stories, can't, you, we can relate to them, right? It elicits emotion from us. You can feel it in your guts. There's almost like a desperation that you can feel because something is lost. The second thing that they have in common is the joy in recovery. And I'm just going to read each summary. Then he calls his friends together and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And then for the coin, when the woman finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And then with the son, the father ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So isn't it true that if you thought you lost something and then it becomes rediscovered, doesn't that thing hold more value to you after having been lost, at least for a while, right? I mean, you, you lose a child in the, in the uh, mall, and then you find them back, and you appreciate them for a little while. Just don't beat them in that moment when you find them back. And then the third thing uh, that the stories have in common, and this is really important, something isn't lost. And that juxtaposition is really important to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. It's more important than the idea that there are things that are lost because he's, he's, he's laying those two things beside each other, that there are things that aren't lost in the midst of things being lost. And he's addressing this kind of apathy that we have spiritually and even like just in life uh, toward the status quo. Because the truth is, in spite of what is safe and sound, there's a disproportionate amount of concern over what isn't. When we lose something, to pursue them, to try and find them again, it's inconvenient. 
it's expensive. It's time-consuming. It can be heart-wrenching. But and especially when you think about it, we, we all have finite, finite, finite resources. We have, we have busy lives. We have things that we have to be focused on. But when that thing is lost, kind of like we throw all that to the wind, right? And we, we throw everything into this. Why? Because of the thing that is lost, even though I might have some similar things that aren't. Like many of you have two dogs or more. When you get up to around five dogs, that's counseling time. But if you, if you have more, more than one dog and you lose one dog, you don't go, oh, I still have another dog, right? And if you have like a wallet full of credit cards and you lose a credit card, you don't go, oh, yeah, I still have a bunch of credit cards. And if you have more than one child and you lose a child, you don't go, well, I still have a couple other kids. That's not what we do. So you see this, this tension between what is lost and what isn't is what Jesus is talking about. And perhaps this is so important, it's why he tells Kind of the same story three times, right in succession, the way that Luke records it. Now, why does he do that? Well, in order to answer the question of why he's telling this story, we have to look at just what happened before. We always talk here about, like, context is everything. And so Luke 15 starts off this way. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Remember, I talked about the crowds are gathering to hear him teach. So what Luke is telling us here is all the wrong people, there's a bunch of the wrong people that are there listening to Jesus. They're tax collectors and sinners. They're, they're not religiously accepted. So they don't belong here in, when, in this circle where Jesus is teaching. Now, you would think that everybody would be thrilled that some tax collectors and sinners showed up to hear Jesus teach, but um, they're not. And then in verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're the most religiously devout people of the day. The people then that are typically described as far from God, see, are coming to hear Jesus. How does Jesus respond to that? What does Luke say? He welcomes how do the, the religious leaders respond? It's not up there anymore, huh? I'll give you the answer. They mutter. So let's, let's be honest here. The truth is, you can be a very religious person. You can be really serious about your faith. You can be devout in that faith. But you could also be a mutterer because that's the profile. That's who is muttering. So what do we learn from these stories today? Well, first of all, we, the, the lost and found stories show how people can be religiously devoted but miss the main thing. That's what happened here. See, we have two choices, to be a welcomer or to be a mutterer. So how can someone who's so devoted to God and has invested so much of their life in spiritual matters, 
um, be so far from this part of who God is. We'll see that in a second. But let's just say that, like, this is what all of us who are devout in our faith or seek after God, it's, we're all susceptible to this. And usually we don't see ourselves as mutterers. We just see ourselves as, well, we've gotten comfortable, right? It's easy to get comfortable with um, the status quo. And in modern evangelicalism today, I mean, um, it's, it's becoming more and more consumeristic. Does that make sense to you? It's like, you know, like so often we're looking at it like, you know, what's in it for me? What, 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 what are you going to do for me today? That's, that's just human beings, you know. We're used to doing that in every other part of our life. And so we bring that same idea to church. Sometimes we, we mutter because we feel a little threatened. We feel like um, we need to defend ourselves. Or maybe, maybe we can just feel replaced. I mean, like, you know, the church, you know, should be more focused on me. I'm not saying that churches shouldn't build believers up. But you, you understand what I'm saying, right? It's easy to fall into this rut and forget and sometimes we just feel like to be a welcomer is to be compromising. It's like, well, if, if that person can sit in church, then we must, you know, we're compromising. And, you know, we could be. Let's just stipulate that it's possible to be a compromiser. But was Jesus a compromiser? No. He was a welcomer, though. But these people had lost the main thing. So it's after noting this, after, after Luke tells us this is what's happened, that's when Jesus tells them this parable. So Luke is showing, showing us why Jesus is telling these three stories. Actually, there's four stories, which we'll talk about. So these people were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They, they were very wrong. You guys okay? Okay, let's keep going. These stories of lost things, don't they grip you? It's like, can't you relate to things that you've lost? It stirs emotions in us. And that's just like Jesus is a brilliant teacher. He's, he captures their attention. And he, he elicits their emotions with these simple stories. But this is more than an emotional connection Jesus is making here. There's seriously, serious theology in these stories. In fact, perhaps the most important theology of all, as simple as it is. Because the lost and found stories reveal the nature of God. They reveal the nature of God. They're not just warm and fuzzy stories about puppies that get lost. This is basic theology, and I would say critical doctrine. If theology is a study of God, then this is telling us who God is. It's expressed in a story form, but it's clear what he's saying. He's saying that God loves people that people who love God think God doesn't love. Just let that one stew on you for a while. And, you know, have you noticed as we've been going through Luke, or as you read through other Gospels, how this is a theme Jesus brings up over and over and over again. Why? Even in the passages that we've looked at today, or, or like this week, 
and the way we chunked Luke out. Uh, there's a story where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and he says, if your uh, child falls into a well, wouldn't you rescue him? Like, don't you care about this more than that? Um, he talks about a great banquet, and he says, if you're going to throw a big party, invite all the people that don't normally get invited. Uh, he talks about the manager who wasted his boss's resources, that his boss gave him all these things, and he was wasting them for the... Pr they weren't being used for the intended purpose. He talked about counting the cost of being a disciple, that he says, deny yourself. You... To follow me, you have to put yourself aside and be, there are other things that are going to become more important. He told a story about a man named Lazarus who was poor and he was ignored by the rich man. And then he talked about like, if you are a person that causes someone to stumble away from God, you might as well hang a rock around your neck and jump in the ocean. And then there's these stories of the lost things. Do you see a theme? It's like Jesus is saying the same thing. And so he, Jesus is reinforcing the theology, not just with th this theology of how people matter, more than just like through the father who runs to the son, but like look at the older son. This is, we didn't read this earlier, so we're going to read it now. Meanwhile, after the, the lost son is, comes back, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But, with the, when, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So can't you feel like the hurt in this son's voice? Can't you feel the resentment of being ignored? And here's what the father, representative of God, says to him, my son, right away. It's like, you're my son. You're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, this brother of yours, not just this son of mine, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So what, what I want you to see is the, the father is grateful for this son and he acknowledges his devotion. But at the same time, he's revealing something to him that is understandably hard for him to grasp at this moment in his life where he is saying, I love you, son, but I want you to join me in what I do. I want you to join your heart with my heart. Now, what may be interesting to the story, this to me, and hopefully it is to you, is that, that, that Luke doesn't close the loop, right? Um, we don't know what the older brother does in the end. What do you think he did? That's a great thing to talk about in your life groups this week, in our small groups that meet around the valley. It's kind of like we get to choose our own adventure and um, ask ourselves, did, did he come around? 
But to better understand fully the story here, or what these stories mean, we need to ask what's uncommon. We've looked at what's common about the stories. Now, what's uncommon about these stories? Because at first glance, this shrink wrap package of lost things looks like three bottles of the same kind of hot sauce, Cholula. But it's not. It's three different kinds. In this package is Cholula, Tapatio, and Herdez. Give it up for knowing all the great... Who's a Tapatio person in here? Who's Cholula? Who's Herdez? All right, all right. Firehouse always had every one of those in them, I'm just saying. So, but there are distinct differences. Even though these are all hot sauce, in a way, there's a distinct difference in each one of them. What's lost is different, but also in a nuanced way, how it comes to be lost. And these are three quickies in your notes. A sheep wanders off, why? Out of his own ignorance. And a coin is misplaced by carelessness. Coin can't get up and walk away. And then a son leaves his home out of pure rebellion. And it's interesting that the lost son is the only thing that isn't pursued. Something to think about. Now, if I read between the lines, this is not the first conversation father and son have had about this issue and about his lifestyle. So the father isn't being callous by letting him go. It's kind of implied that he's made his investment and he's tried to work this out with his kid and there was just no doing it. So he had to let him go. He had played every card he had, I'm sure, as a dad to keep his son from going down this path. But in the end, every human being has free will and we can't force him. But when he returns, he's welcomed immediately. For him to show up is huge. I mean, how much courage did that take for him to come back and humble himself like that? But he's welcome back right away. And honestly, this is another thing that considers, like, we don't know if he stuck around. I'm sure that um, it was pretty dicey for a while, knowing the lifestyle that he lived, and he comes back, and of course he's desperate. But once that desperation goes away... It's pretty easy to just fall back into it, right? How many of us know people that have an addiction and they just keep going back to it and back to it and we live with hope when they get in a program and then like a week later they're out of the program and it's like, who knows what he did? I think it's that part that, um, that we can learn most from. Um, these differences in the lost things. And to, for me, it's the most interesting part about the story when I think about it. And this is kind of like an underlying thing, that these things that were lost and how they ended up being lost. Because sometimes people are lost and they don't know it. Like a, like a sheep that just doesn't really know any better, that leaves the protection of the shepherd and the warmth and fellowship of the other sheep. And they just don't even know. They don't know what they don't know. And so they just wander out, right? And in that case, Jesus is saying, it's 
it's worth leaving a few in order to get that lost sheep back. The, the shepherd doesn't just shout from the safety of the 99, from the barn or the corral or the little pasture. And he's still got 99. He's still going to be profitable this year, but he just makes some arrangement possibly and then gets out there and tries to find this sheep. And wouldn't it be, what if we could capture that idea as Christians today that people who are far from God don't always know that they're far from God. They didn't have religious training or or they, you know, they just, they don't, they have a misconception about God or who Jesus Christ is or what it means to be a Christian in uh, this day and time. And what if what if we took on, in that case, we took on more of a, the posture of a rescuer, of thinking how we could help them find their way back? Rather, and, and rather than just like, what is, what's like the other side of that? Is this to feel really comfortable about, well, we still have 99. Then when you think about story two, about the lost coin, again, coins don't get up and walk away. They're lost through carelessness. And isn't it true that, like, people can be hurt by Christians or by a church. And they can just, like, throw their hands up and give up. It's like, that happened. I'm not making excuses for that. But it's like, that is what happens. There's a carelessness that we can have. It's one of the reasons for me why our groups are so important because at least somebody knows what's going on with you in our groups. You know people, they know you, and it's harder to fall through the cracks that way. One of the hardest things about COVID was we didn't know what was happening with people, no matter what we did. It's like during COVID, people just kind of like wandered away. Maybe some of you did in your back. Um, or like, you know, some people said, well, I go into another church because, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. And you just wouldn't even know, like, are, are they okay? And it became really difficult. But we don't want people to fall through the cracks, through carelessness. I bet you everybody here knows somebody that feels burned by a church or by Christians. So much so that they're like, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. And then the third group, our third lost thing was, you know, the lost son. It's, it's more about people who intentionally choose to walk away from God. And not much can be done once they do that, um, except to welcome them back when they show up. And to realize that when they come back, they're going to be different. But when they return home, we throw our arms around them. Um, and welcome them. And maybe there's things that we need to deal with along the way and figure out, but we'll do that. We don't just say, okay, you know, right back to square one. It's like people move through a process when they return to God. But we could take the posture of being people who are always looking for them to come back and to welcome them, not mutter, 
when they do. And then the bonus loss thing. This is extra. You guys are getting this today without even, like, you didn't even know. It's not in your notes, but there are those that are just lost at home, like the older brother, right? It's called the older brother syndrome. And, you know, we think of him, he was just as lost as the brother who went away, even though he was present with the father. And it's really easy um, for us to, like, do religious things, um, to, to hang in there in church, but like our hearts are so far from God. We're just angry, um, resentful, you know, just unhappy and focused on the wrong thing. Sometimes you should be unhappy at a church. I'm not, that's, this is not, I'm not trying to be defensive in any way. I'm just saying like, it's really easy for us to get into that mode especially as good as we have it in this day and age. And what I want you to see, if, if you're struggling that way, is that the father loves the older brother too. But at the same time he's expressing his love for him, he's inviting him to join him, to care the way he cares about the returning brother. Now I'm just going to ask the band to come up and... Uh, as the last point, it's this. The lost and found stories show us that we are called to care about the lost. Isn't that the end game of this whole matter? That's the point. And the truth is, you won't always be the rescuer. You won't always find the coin. And you won't always be there when they return and you get to hug them and kiss them. Some of you just seem to have a knack for that. You're like, you're that person that can be out there, be on the edge and bringing people back in the church. And not, not everybody can do that. I get that. But we can all be part of the celebration, right? Um, we, we welcome people when you work in children's ministry, when you work in a tech booth, or you start a pickleball group, or you lead a life group, or you're part of the band. You're, these are different ways that we can all join the party, even though we might have been out in the field when the person returned. And then some of you, you just pay for the party, right? You fund it. You pay for the fatted calf, and that's okay too, because you can't have a party without the fatted calf, unfortunately, for the fatted calf, right? But the point is to care about that. And what I want you to see is that is the theology of all theology. Sometimes we think, okay, there's doctrine and then there's love. There isn't that. The love of God is the most important doctrine so that it needs to be sprinkled on everything that you read and learn from God from here on out. The gospel isn't a, like one of the things. It's everything. The gospel is the main thing. And what we have to get in our minds as Christians who hold standards, who believe the Bible, who, who will speak the truth to people about their lives and where they're headed, we, we always have to have that heart because that's what permeates every doctrine in the Bible. That is what Jesus was trying to teach in that moment. And that is why Luke 
made sure that we didn't miss it with these three stories, all packaged up for us in one place. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.